praise the Lord for such love. He is God of justice, a God of mercy, a God who invites us to know Him and to rest in His rescuing love. Let me invite you, church, to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 21 today. Now, we've been journeying through this portion of God's Word, studying through the book of Exodus together. And today we come to chapter 21, the first 11 verses of that chapter. And uh, those of you who have been around here for a little while have probably uh, heard me say something like, when it comes to reading, teaching, and preaching God's Word, we're not going to skip over the hard stuff. Uh, and today we come to some hard stuff. But we're not going to skip over the stuff that causes a little unsettled but healthy tension inside of us. And so when the Word of God is unclear, let's pray for clarity. When the Word of God is clear, let's vow to obey. Where it is convicting, let's confess our sin to the faithful, forgiving, and just one. And where it is correcting, let's be quick to stand corrected. Well, today we come to Exodus 21 in the context of our text for this morning. Uh, this passage is nestled in the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant, meaning the few chapters that follow uh, God appearing to his rescued people on top of Mount Sinai and then giving them the Ten Commandments. And as we noted last week, these various passages that follow in chapters 21, 22, and 23 uh, could be described and have been described as various case laws, specific scenarios and situations, not an exhaustive list, that help God's people apply the principles that He gives to them in the Ten Commandments. And so all of this is in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. God is entering into covenant with His rescued people through Moses. And He's giving the various stipulations for what that covenant, what that relationship is going to look like. And so when we come to a passage like this, uh, when we come to a portion of Scripture like this, we interpret and we apply a passage, uh, we, we need to do so theologically. In other words, we need to do so hearing what God has said and is saying through this particular text, but doing so through the lens of the new covenant that has been fulfilled through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God, church, we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant because the righteous demands of God have been fulfilled in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus, the Son of God and our Savior. But even so, that's not reason to dismiss this portion of the Bible. Many folks are quick to sort of skim over, gloss over. It's tempting even for us to, to gloss over uh, the law and the difficulties found therein. But we don't ignore these laws because through them, church, we, we do learn about the character of our God. We, we learn about His unchanging character and what it looks like for His people to live in the world as His people. In other words, as we read the Bible... We're looking to discern timeless theological principles that God gives by entering into the story, hearing the story in its context, and then doing so certainly as Christians today within the greater context of God's story of salvation through Jesus. And so now that we've got that out of the way, let's, let's hear from the Lord. It's here from His Word. Exodus chapter 21, as you find your place there, let me invite you, as is our practice here at Meadowbrook, to join me standing for the reading of, of God's Holy Word. Exodus 21, I'll read verses 1 through 11. God says to Moses, These are the laws you are to set before them. 
If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. All right, now that our minds are racing and wondering, let's seek the Lord and ask him to help us. Let's bow together. Father, we need you. And we want to hear from you. We want to be instructed by you. We want to know you and to live for your glory. So guide us and instruct us now by the presence and power of your spirit here through your word. That we might hear your truth and rightly apply it to our lives as your people living in Birmingham, Alabama today. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So to begin with here as we seek to understand and digest a passage like this, we need to hear as as Western 21st century readers of God's Word that the slavery described here and elsewhere in the Bible was significantly different than the slavery that took place in our our own nation's history. See, See, though the Bible never explicitly condemns or defends slavery, it does, we need to hear this, it does set forth principles that eventually led to abolition. And so we need to hear from God's Word. We need to hear what that what God was allowing among His people was drastically different from our preconceived ideas about slavery. In fact, these Israelites had just been delivered. They had just been rescued from an oppressive form of slavery in Egypt, the kind of oppressive form of slavery that likely enters our mind when we hear the word slavery. And and God is making clear, He wants to make clear that His people do not then engage in a type of servitude or slavery that oppresses others. He is making clear that He did not deliver them in order for them to oppress others. So here's what I want us to do. Here's how I want us to approach this difficult text and subject today. I want to quickly give five truths about ancient Israelite slavery. And then what we're going to do is we're going to try to discern what is the the timeless theological principle that God is communicating here and how can we apply it to our lives today as His people. First truth, it was voluntary servitude. It was voluntary servitude. You see, in Moses' day, people often hired themselves into the service of others in order to pay a debt or to improve their lives. It's voluntary servitude. Involuntary servitude was prohibited clearly in this very same chapter, verse 16. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death. No kidnapping or forced slavery 
among the Israelites. These servants engaged in a form really of contract work and lived in their master's home with room, board, and an honest wage. It was voluntary servitude. Second truth, it was a temporary agreement. It was a temporary agreement. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. In other words, in this way, it reflected the Sabbath principle that we've already been introduced to multiple times in God's Word. Even those engaged in servitude were freedom-bound. They would not be servants forever. Third, we see here that ancient Israelite slavery was civil. It was voluntary servitude, it was a temporary agreement, and it was civil. What do we mean by that? By that, I mean it was not oppressive or it was not racially motivated. Unlike the African slave trade in our nation's own racist past that often turned violent and abusive, the kind of servitude God addresses here must not, it cannot be, God does not allow it to be abusive or oppressive. And if it did turn abusive, the slave walked free. Chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. The kind of servitude that God was describing here was voluntary, it was temporary, it was civil, and forth, it was for the benefit of both parties, for the benefit of both parties. Of course, hired labor benefits the one in the position of power. And it benefits the one uh, who uh, has the family estate or business, allowing him to improve his business. But how would it benefit, how could it benefit the servant? Well, the servant's labor paid off his debt, number one, but it was also, it seems, uh, to have been a form of on-the-job training, preparing for ultimate freedom. The servant was freedom-bound and a gracious master was to help his servant improve his situation. We see a window into this in Deuteronomy chapter 15, another place where God is describing this kind of ancient Israelite servitude. And listen to what he says. Listen to what God says. He says, when you release your servants, in other words, after they have served their time and it's time to let them go, the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, when you release your servants, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why God says, I give you this command today. In other words, as God loved and rescued and equipped and blessed you, so now go and love, rescue, equip, and bless those who serve you. Give to them as the Lord your God has given to you. So ancient Israelite slavery was voluntary, it was temporary, it was civil, it was for the benefit of both parties. And lastly, I think we see here that it preserved the sanctity of marriage. Preserved the sanctity of marriage. American slavery, if you've... Read your history does quite the opposite, often did quite the opposite, splitting up and destroying many black families and was absolutely repulsive to the God who rescues. But notice what is described here in verse 3. Verse 3, if he comes alone, if the servant comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. In other words, he's to return to his familial situation uh, before servitude. If while a slave, he married another slave in his, ma- in, in his master's household, things were quite a bit more complex and complicated. Because both servants were to complete their individual contract of labor. And so if the husband was 
let go before his wife, then he had a number of options. Here were really his three options. One, he could wait for her to be set free. Number two, he could get a good job and purchase her freedom. Number three, he could permanently commit himself to serve his master by piercing his ear, symbolizing obedience, hearing and obeying the word of his master at the master's doorpost, symbolizing that the servant was now attached permanently to the master's household. Now this may sound strange. Not may, it does sound strange. This is strange and even appears harsh. But suppose, suppose, suppose this particular provision about marriage is actually for the wife's protection. A a way that God is ensuring the husband could provide and care for his new wife and kids with full responsibility under his own roof. In other words, when he gets his life together, when He settles down and proves that he can care for a family. So that leads us to the final section of our text where it addresses particularly ancient Israelite female slavery. So let me share quickly four truths about ancient Israelite female slavery. Verse 7, it was supposed to protect her supposed to protect her. That is the female servant. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. It doesn't sound like protection. Right away, to us, that no doubt sounds discriminatory and harsh. Why would a father sell his daughter? And why would a female servant not go free if a male servant would? But again, context is key. Arranged Marriages, quite common, in fact, probably the norm in that day, and a poor man might sell his daughter to a rich home with the hope that she would become part of that family. Without a family, without a community, in the ancient world, women were vulnerable to all kinds of abuse and danger and exploitation. Even so, these arranged marriages did not always work out. And when they didn't, God puts the burden of responsibility on the man, on the master. Verse 8, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. In other words, if it doesn't work out, he cannot treat her however he wants. She was not to blame and given the opportunity to return back home to her biological family. Her family could ransom her. In order to protect her and her family could ransom her, she could not be sold for she was not property. She, She was not to be treated any way, whatever, however wanted. She was to be treated with dignity and respect, allowing her family the opportunity to ransom her, to purchase back her freedom was meant to protect her. Her family could ransom her. Third truth we see here is that the father could adopt her. Verse 9, the father could adopt her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. In other words, and this was likely often the intent, if she married the master's son, she became a full member of the master's family. Considered a a free woman with full rights of citizenship and membership into the family. Adopted. Considered a daughter. Fourth and finally, the potential husband must provide for her. 
must provide for her. We see this in verses 10 and 11. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. In other words, the idea is that if the engagement that was intended, if it ended, the potential husband still had an obligation to care for the woman, protecting her, providing for her, and ensuring that no one else took advantage of her. Now, as strange as these laws sound to us, God spoke them, hear this, for the good of His people, for both those in positions of authority and those in positions of submission. God was describing in this context, in that day and time, for His people, He was describing what it would look like for His redeemed people to love their neighbors as themselves. And so here's the point, I think, the timeless principle that we can take from this text and we can trace through God's word and that we can rest assured is from the Lord and that we can build our lives upon. We can take this truth and apply it to God's people in any age. And that is this, that God calls the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace. The God who rescues us, the God who has rescued us, It's a God who calls the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace. And so here we have a particular case law in which God is describing those who were powerful in that day and time and those who were vulnerable, and He's calling the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace. God does not and is not condoning slavery, especially any notion of slavery that oppresses those in position of vulnerability. Rather, just as we see throughout His Word, He makes provisions and He expresses loving care for the oppressed in ways that contrast sharply with the prevailing practices of the day. In other words, God is saying, those around you may disregard the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, but God says, not my people. No. Not you. You love and care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. Those around you may shun the tax collector, the prostitute and the sinner. But Jesus says, not my followers, not my people. You love and serve the least of these. For that is what I came to do for you. This is what he has done for us. Church, see the grace of the master who served to save you. See, the grace of the Master who served to save you and to save me. God calls the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace. If you want an example, the greatest example of the powerful treating the vulnerable with dignity and grace, look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of the Master who served to rescue us. The one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those who know him, church, are freedom bound already purchased and pardoned and now awaiting the full privileges of heavenly citizenship. So brother, sister, see the grace. See the grace of the Master who served, who served in order to save you and to save me. And then don't stop there. Live in ways that are consistent with that gospel message. Live in ways that declare your allegiance to the gracious master and that promote the values of his eternal kingdom. So what does that look like? Well, let me quickly give us three beginning points for doing just that, for applying the principle behind this text. First, promote the welfare of those working for you. Promote the welfare of those 
working for you. If you're a business owner, if you're a manager, if you're a boss of any kind, do not exploit those who work for you, but treat them with dignity and grace, even even helping them advance their careers under you. Perhaps this means going the extra mile to express gratitude and to teach life skills rather than simply being concerned about the bottom line. God calls the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace. So promote the welfare of those working for you. And second, husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved you. Love your wives as Christ has loved you. Even here we see instructions from an ancient culture. Ancient culture. More than 3,000 years ago, God is describing an ancient culture that was very different from our own. But even here, we, we sense that God is upholding marriage in a way that expresses dignity and worth for both the husband and the wife. But especially, especially for wives as the gender that has most often been susceptible to abuse and exploitation. So husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, the burden here is on us. So let's step up to the plate. And you guys that are not yet married or no longer married are not off the hook here either. Brothers, men, boys, brothers, honor your sisters as daughters of God. How can we take this principle and begin to press into it and apply it to our lives as people of faith today? Honor your sisters. Men, boys, honor your sisters. May we honor our sisters as daughters of the Most High God. As Paul writes to Timothy, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. God calls the powerful to treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace, but far too often, church, we men have not and are not doing so. So to help us hear more about how we can treat the vulnerable with dignity and grace, we've got a special guest with us today. And so we invite Holly, would you come join me on the platform for the next few minutes? And Holly Heisch serves as development officer for the Wellhouse Ministry. We've also got Alan Worthington with us today. He's the chairman of the board of that same ministry. And so Holly, tell us, uh, why does the Wellhouse exist? What is it? Good morning. Is this working? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, the Wellhouse exists um, to provide a solution to the issue of human trafficking. Um, we, our primary purpose is to show the victims of trafficking that are put in our care um, God's love and to introduce them to the reality of having a relationship with him and the redemption that only comes um, through him. And we do that through um, providing a home for them and a lot of different programs and services on our campus um, from a trauma center to a short-term living program, a long-term living program, and transitional apartments. Um, And we're in St. Clair County. Very good. Well, tell us, you mentioned the, the Wellhouse Ministry serves to, uh, to address victims of human trafficking and help them transform their lives. What is human trafficking? Uh, help us understand what that is. Okay. So um, 
today, human trafficking is, is literally the, the selling of another human being as though they are a commodity, either for work or for sexual exploitation. And the Wellhouse serves victims of the latter. Um, and thank you for what you shared with us. It's so relevant. Um, and today, you know, a lot of people think that, that human trafficking is happening um, internationally and across borders, and that does indeed happen. Um, but today, for sure, there are many U.S. traffickers who are trafficking U.S. citizens um, here in our country, and, and it's a crime, um, but it's a very lucrative one. And um, so it's important to know that this is going on here in um, our country and in Alabama and in Birmingham, um, and it looks different than what people may think. It's not necessarily people um, that are that are abducted and kidnapped. In fact, that's really rare. This really starts um, through a relationship with somebody, um, and and definitely to the vulnerable, um, somebody who's had a hardship or you know any kind of disability that, that you can imagine. Um, they are vulnerable to this happening to them, and it happens through manipulation um, and, by definition, force, fraud, or coercion for those who are 18 and older. Shocking and just hard to imagine that this is something that is happening, like you said, not just internationally, here in our own country, even here in our own state and even here in the Birmingham metro area. So, Holly, tell us a little bit, what can we do as believers who believe that, uh, that the God that we worship is a God who rescues, uh, a God who loves uh, all people that he calls us to be about uh, sharing and showing the gospel to the vulnerable. Uh, so how can we partner together? How can we help fight human trafficking and support the wellhouse? Thank you. Um, there are many ways, and for one, thank you for having me here today, because that's step one, is being aware and understanding what's going on and that it is going on in our backyard. Um, I want to thank really quick, if that's okay, David Brown and David Splon for introducing themselves to me and for having a heart for trafficking victims and connecting me with Meadowbrook. Um, but we also would appreciate your prayer, first and foremost, um, the work that we do is challenging, and we believe we're fighting more than just evil people. Um, so you're covering us in prayer and remembering us when when you do would be amazing. Um, if you want to know more about the Wellhouse, I'm here after the service, and I'd love to talk to you about what we do in, in a bit more depth. Um, but you can stay connected with us through our website, through following us on social media, you can sign up for our newsletters, and those go out just once a quarter, and they're packed with good information about what the Wellhouse is doing, so you can um, stay in the know with what we're doing. If you would like to volunteer, we always um, love and want more volunteers to join alongside us in our work. There are tons of opportunities, um, either to work with our residents or in the background, whatever you feel led to do, and certainly if you can give financially, um, we would really appreciate that partnership. Fantastic. Thank you, Holly. And church, just to show you a little bit about the way that God 
works. So Holly was scheduled to be here back in the spring uh, on Mother's Day, I believe. And of course, with the coronavirus, we were not gathered together at that time. But it just so happens that as we scheduled several weeks out, this was the Sunday that she would be here as we uh, opened up God's word in this portion of the Bible and, and saw uh, about uh, God calling his people to be people who care for others with dignity and grace. And so we want to acknowledge uh, God's power. We want to acknowledge his call. We want to, to lift up this ministry to him uh, and to pray that the Lord would work in the lives of his people across the city and state, nation, and around the world to, uh, to rescue victims of human trafficking, that they would come to experience the love of God and know and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. So I want to invite you, church, over the next uh, minute or so, right where you are, to offer up silent prayers to the Lord on behalf of the well house uh, and on behalf of those who are victims of injustice. We want to seek the Lord together. And as we do, David's going to come momentarily. He's going to uh, begin leading our hymn of response. Then I'll voice a prayer and we'll respond together in song. But let's be intentional, church, right now, lifting up this ministry to the Lord, asking him to intervene. Uh, and to open our eyes that we might be uh, his human agents who uh, share his gospel and show his, his gospel right here into the ends of the earth. Let's bow together and pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who rescues. You're a God who redeems. Father, you are a God who has given your perfect, spotless Son in our place that we might be rescued from slavery to sin, that we might be welcomed into your family, that we might be the recipients of your unfailing love. Father, we believe that gospel message, that gospel truth. Father, we pray that that you would work in a mighty way the hands and the feet and the voices of your people, Lord, to shed, to shed the light of the gospel on the injustices that are being committed here in Birmingham, across Alabama, and around the world and through trafficking. Father, we pray that you would work in an extraordinary way, that lives would continue to be rescued, and we thank you for, for those that have been rescued. We thank you for those that are being provided for. We thank you for those that are experiencing your love even now through the ministry of the Well House. We pray that you would bless that ministry, that you would use it to transform lives now and forever around the gospel of Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would continually transform our hearts and our lives around the gospel of Jesus. Lord, that we would build our lives upon the truth of your word, that we would lay our lives before you. Hear us now, Lord, as we Respond to you in faith. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, church, let's...